0: There is nothing that can make you feel so good about yourself than learning and being passionate about whatever it is you're learning. Have diversion. So even if you're learning the guitar, go do it. But be passionate about it. Do it well.
1: Everyone, welcome back to the show. Today's guest is uh, I don't know, it's a hilarious one for me in a lot of ways. Today's guest is my mom, Ursula Arslanian. Uh, my mom was a school teacher for many years in the Calgary separate school system and has just been a really incredible professional, intellectual, um, family leader. And the reason I wanted to have my mom on is, A, hey, I, I love to hear about her professional story, what it was like being the breadwinner of, a, of our family in a time when really that defied what was conventional tradition. And also, you know, we've experienced um, a pretty significant shift in our family life around a family member's health, and my mom has really been leading the family through that. So I think there's a lot of stuff in here for anyone who's taken on leadership in, I'd say, a very difficult space that has as much to do with who they are as the people around them. So. I think this is an incredible conversation, meant a lot to me, and thanks, Mom, for being there. Um, But before we get to it, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. All right, welcome to the show
0: thank you ram this is very nice
1: okay very so for the audience the people who don't know the uninitiated who are you and what do you do
0: well apart from the obvious that i'm your mother um which i'm very proud to be by the way uh, my name is ursula and i'm the mother of another child mm-hmm. uh, your your sister mm-hmm. and of course i'm your I'm a wife mm-hmm. and uh, my greatest role is to be a grandmother. Mm-hmm. That is the joy of my life. And um, other than that, uh, that's it at the moment for me. I'm very happy mm-hmm. being in this role as an yeah. elder mm-hmm. actually in the family just now.
1: Yeah. So y- you've had a storied career as an educator.
0: I was a teacher.
1: For how many years?
0: Well, I graduated, uh, in 1966, uh, from London, from yeah. London, University College London. And uh, I, you know, didn't work permanently for a long time because I married your father soon afterwards mm-hmm. and we traveled and, uh, then we had children. Mm-hmm. I didn't go back to teaching permanently until you were in Grade one, I think, or at the end of kindergarten, grade one. And then I really took a permanent job, not just subbing or part time, but permanent. And I worked there for 25 years. But overall, I was 40 years in education mm-hmm. uh, doing different jobs, really.
1: Yeah. Even
0: tutoring, that sort of thing.
1: So the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast, beyond the fact that, you know, you're my mom and it's kind of fun to have you on the podcast, yeah, is. You were, you were my first example of someone who kind of had to color outside of the lines to make things work. And you've continued to have, it, have to do that in, you know, kind of your current space in our family in terms of like leadership. So I know it's like a leadership business podcast and all that, but, you know, I viewed you as someone who's been willing to kind of do the tough stuff to make things work. And I thought you'd have a lot of interesting things to share. So I want to start with, like, you know, when, when I was a kid, a little kid growing up in Calgary, we didn't have any family around us. It was just the four of us in this
0: yeah. a huge void in our lives, huge.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, I was young. Araxi was young. So we're, we were basically on our own in Calgary.
0: Nuclear family.
1: Yeah. Um, but the recession that happened in the eighties, Came along and really changed our family dynamic, and you found yourself to be the breadwinner of the family
0: for a time. Just for a time. For how long? Um, well, for a few years until Dad reestablished himself, mm-hmm. and um, he he was creative in that. Mm-hmm. But remember when the reception, recession started. Mm-hmm your father wasn't 30 years, your father was in his mid-fifties, so mm. uh, it was extremely hard to reinvent yourself when there's a recession and you've worked at a particular job for a long time. Mm. But he did that, and uh, then I did my thing. We, we, in fact, for a time, exchanged leadership roles. Mm. And the reason we could do that was, I realize now, hindsight, of the panorama of my life. I, I I know certain things happened, and why they happened. And the reason why I could do that was because I knew what leadership was from him. Mm-hmm. And I stepped into that role with uh, with his blessing, actually, and his support. Mm-hmm. And it gave him a bit of time to reestablish himself mm-hmm. and he did and he did it as an older an older man mm-hmm. in in um a, a very competitive society calgary is a business city yeah. and it took him time to do that but he did it mm-hmm. and we worked our way out of it together
1: mm-hmm. yeah i'd say like from growing up watching that dynamic i think the two of you had like a, a really it was an unspoken to us, but a, a really good back and forth about kind of because I, I don't know necessarily if like one person took the lead or not, but it was like at that time, you know, in the '80s in North America, it was more thought of as the man being the breadwinner. Absolutely. Winner. So you switched roles, but Dad was the leader of that of the home because he was a stay-at-home father. Yeah. And you were the professional out working for for a period. Yes. Yeah. But let's let's take Dad out of the story though. At that time, unexpectedly, it wasn't something he had asked for or you had asked for. You no. both found yourselves in this situation.
0: We had never really planned it as right.
1: such. What was it like for you being this person now who had this responsibility of creating the financial stability and future for the family unexpectedly in a time where that was relatively unusual?
0: It was very scary because when I went back uh, to teaching, I had been out of the profession for a number of years, and I hadn't taught in any significant way in Canada. Mm. I had done subbing, I had done uh, tutoring, that sort of thing. But to get a serious job mm. in a serious school board, mm. I needed to retrain. I needed to up my educational background. Mm. This was 1980. I had graduated in 1966, and there was always that tension to make myself suitable for the job market. And here's the thing, if you're interested in any career, I don't care who you are, you really have to keep up on your professional training, or any kind of training. It doesn't have to be... Uh, with a university degree, it's whatever job you're in, you have to have the best knowledge of your job and you have to be able to, uh, give your very best to the people that you're paid to be of service to, be that children or in a store. I don't care what it is. You have to learn what it is you're what you're giving to people, you have to learn about it, mm-hmm. and I I had to do that, and I had to take courses, and um, that was very challenging for me, very very challenging, because I suddenly realised not only what I knew, that was very important, because my education had come very hard uh, in, to, to me, in that I was privileged to to be an educated woman. Mm. But I realized it actually it wasn't enough to do well in my job. And that was very humbling actually. Mm. But I I realized I wasn't because I saw people, particularly women like me, who were coming back and who were it was this predated uh childcare, you know, the child care it's so wonderful now uh, it even predated the full maternity leave that women have now it was beginning but it wasn't as large as it is now the time off work so women were coming back and they had they were taking courses and they were managing families and they were in s- s- the same situation as me living in a recession mm. with husbands like mine out there trying, trying to reestablish themselves and they were doing it. And I thought, you know, I really have to do that. And I learned so much from that. What did you learn? Well, first of all, I learned what I didn't know and (laughs) I learned what I had to do. If I was going to be serious, I had to decide whether, was this a little job to tide us over? And then I'd go back Mm. to working to, you know, know, a few days a week or a few mornings a week or subbing. Or was it going to be a serious job? And I wanted it to be a serious job Mm. because I found out I loved it. And I found out that despite what I yet needed to learn to be good at it, that actually I had the potential to be a very good teacher. Mm. And I took... Everything that, the system I worked for, the educational, the the board that I worked for, they offered all kinds of in-servicing, after school, uh, weekend courses, and I took advantage of all of them. And I realized that that was a good thing to do because not only did I know what I needed to become, but that school board needed me to know what i needed to know they were making they were giving me opportunity to be the best i could be from you know a little flash course and this was pre pre Mm pre-internet you had to show up to these courses Mm -hmm. so i took advantage of that Mm -hmm. and then i realized you know i'd have to take the odd summer course or whatever was was available I didn't care to do that particularly. i I liked my summers with you and your sister and uh, your dad yeah. and gave him time to do his thing as well,
1: you know, um, it was like kind of so being the audience of that, like within the house, when you um, became the the breadwinner and you went full- time and dad took over the household for, yeah, led the household, like it seemed because we were little kids, but it seemed seamless. And of course there were bumps as like families have, but it seemed like, oh, like they're just switching roles and it didn't seem weird to us. Like, or I can say at least to me, um, it was only when I got a little bit older that I, I noticed that like, you know, people would be like, oh, your your mom, your dad, your dad is a stay at home, dad. And I never felt like, you know, as a little kid, you might feel embarrassed or any of those, I liked having dad around. So it wasn't like, I didn't have that story that a lot of kids have that were my generation, it's like, oh, your dad was always away working or traveling and you were home because you were a teacher. So you're home for the summer. So I basically had both my parents around me um, a lot. But what did stand out to me that I didn't, I wouldn't have articulated it this way when I was a kid, but I remember thinking like, oh, my mom's kind of a badass. Like my mom's the one who went out and is doing this stuff. And I knew it was unusual because as I got a little bit older, because people would comment on it. And it was really good for me to have that archetype of like, oh no, like, you know, like leaders come in all shapes and sizes. And, you know, it's the people that step into the breach and like handle it and lead and they just do it. that make the difference, and of course, it made a huge difference. It makes a huge difference of how I uh, of how I've engaged with everything professionally, uh, especially about that. Like, oh, you do what you have to do to, to get through. Mm-hmm. You have to work hard. Um, I remember the idea of being floated around our our house. Like, the one thing that never can be taken away from you is education. Like, yeah. w- once you're educated, nobody. We can ever valued take that away. it,
0: and we came from families that valued it.
1: So, um, so for me, it was like having my mother. In the, in the 80s, like the early 80s, be the breadwinner, really kind of me up for how I viewed the world in, in what I believe has been a very positive thing. Um, so as a kid, like, of course, it was a bit tumultuous, like, uh, to see that, that change, but it seemed relatively seamless. But what was it really like for you, like, psychologically to take on that level of challenge and, like, be in a challenge, but I guess be in such a different role than, than your life had, than you'd anticipated in your life?
0: Yeah. Well, nothing Nothing really um, prepared me for it, uh, even though I was, uh, you know, I was quite well-educated. The traditional family values, uh, I grew up with those, and uh, so did your, your father. The hard part of it, actually, was not so much between, um, within the family so much, as me having to get out there and uh, make myself into what I needed to become to do a good job. As I mentioned before, that required a lot of energy. And I wasn't used to focusing my energy that way. I was used to doing very traditional things. You know, I was in a quilting club, you know. I even took your sister for quilting lessons at one time. you know, I was in a book club.
1: So you say you're the quilt essential person. Quilt <laughs> that
0: time. Essential person. And then I didn't have time for any of. I found other things, uh-huh. and um, that that was the hard part. Realizing that there was another world out there that was actually a bit unforgiving to motherhood and traditional. A traditional view of marriage and partnership. If you went out into the world to make a living, you really had to go out and do it, yeah. and if not, too bad, you know. You you were asked why you couldn't do such a thing, why you, you couldn't be late, for example, if you're a teacher, you've got to show up on time. And it was that like, I couldn't make excuses. I couldn't make motherhood an excuse. I couldn't make the fact that uh, I came from a very traditional homemaking background for not showing up. I actually had to become a professional mm-hmm. as opposed to somebody who was, who had a nice job.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I so much of my hustle uh, and how I've been able to do cadence and do things, and even like how I did my bands, I think is based on what I experienced watching you do that when I was growing up. And it's not like I couldn't articulate it like that when I was a little kid, mm. but I saw that I, to the degree that a very young child would take that in, I took that in.
0: Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, the work ethic.
1: <laughs> the work ethic, but the also like you. Nobody's going to give it to you. You have to like.
0: You have to go out and do it.
1: When we talk when we talk about kind of like that, like unmerciful. Nature of the world outside your world. You know, you've got your insular kind of like family life, and that should be merciful and, and uh, you know, ideally for anyone. I know it's not that for everyone, but
0: and it is surprisingly so. Yeah, I just thought it wasn't. I found it later on well, when I got my training. That's what they wanted me to do. Get yeah. it. Get the training. Get go to in services. Be the best you can.
1: Well, yeah, like, but that idea, you know, your um, your the inner world should have. Uh, and I, I hope this for everyone, like uh, a sense of like mercy and peace and, and comfort. But the outer world is competitive. Like competition, when I was younger, I, I really didn't like the idea of competitiveness. But it's funny because I've always been a competitive person. But I always I kind of fooled myself into thinking I wasn't. Everything is competition in the outside world. And, it, and in the inside world, it can be as well. But everything is in competition. The seed is in competition with the earth, like the, the, the soil surrounding it. Um, And I don't mean competition in this like nasty kind of toxic way. I mean, like to give your best, you've got to be tested and you've got to work and you got to figure it out. And I saw so much of that in, in what you were doing is kind of like, you're, you're in the situation where you had to just kind of dive into the deep end and you did it and you didn't give up. And in fact, you continue
0: getting your education well into your teaching career. Right. Until I got my master's when I was 50, 51, 52. And I chipped away at that. you know again, um, the school board I worked for uh, would pay for some of the courses if you and uh, pay a percentage of it. I don't know that school boards can do that now, but they were doing it at that time. Yeah. And um, you know I take a course here and there, and it so empowered me to be a lifelong learner. I There is nothing that can make you feel so good about yourself than learning and being passionate about whatever it is you're learning. I don't care if it's... Like in one of your podcasts, you were saying, you know, have diversion. So even if you're learning the guitar, go do it. But be passionate about it. Do it well. even today i am a, a relentless internet person i, oh, I i'm always on you know finding <laughs> courses to follow cheap courses some of them are awful but some of them are surprisingly good you know uh, flash courses on um whatever uh, uh, how to bake banana bread that sort of thing uh, i love learning i love it yeah. and i hope that um your daughter mm-hmm. my lovely granddaughter will have that that curiosity mm-hmm. because i think people who are not curious mm-hmm. are sad mm-hmm. and children i have taught and i've taught some the children who are not curious the students i've taught who are not curious who will come in and take you know take whatever the teacher is giving but they don't show great curiosity i always hoped that they had a passion other than, I didn't expect them to have a passion for French or language arts, but at least an interest, But when they didn't show any curiosity, Mm -hmm. it worried me about them. Mm -hmm. And it's curiosity that, uh, quoting your podcast, makes us do that one step beyond. You say, gosh, I wonder why that was. And if you're very curious, you'll find out why that was. Yeah, yeah. And that's what takes you then into the wonder of learning, and actually the wonder of life. You, you want to find out what your neighbor is, mm-hmm. is like. So you introduce yourself, or yeah. your that sort of thing. It's curiosity uh, about life and learning and people yeah. in a good, you know, curious in a good way.
1: Um, so, you know, you, you, you do your career and you have a storied career and, and, you know, your, your life story is, as I know it is interesting cause you know, you grew up in Ireland.
0: Yes. I, I'm an Irish woman and I'm very proud of it.
1: And where did you grow up in Ireland?
0: I grew up in a very lovely part of Ireland. It's, um, called Kildare mm-hmm. and it's not mountainous. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have lakes and it's very green. Mm-hmm. Flat countryside, good farmland. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really do get excited by fields and nature because I not nature with forests that Mm -hmm. scares me, Mm -hmm. but if I see a field Mm -hmm. and things growing in it, I clutch my heart. I go, oh, there's going to be a harvest.
1: Mm. I mean, so you're outstanding in your field. I'm
0: outstanding (laughs) in my field. I love uh, driving along and seeing. Chilled fields around I get it I'm not laughing <laughs> <laughs> this punning thing well
1: uh, thank you for fielding my questions
0: <laughs> anyway I grew up in Kildare and it, 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 the green fertile place mm. and I have to say it, yes was a poor it was a poor country when I grew up in it mm. the Ireland of today is so vastly different it's like stepping into another world for me mm. I simply I get overwhelmed when I go home, everybody has so much. And we didn't have a lot of things, but the family was interested in education. There were always books, not lots of them, but the library was an essential part of our family. And I, my sister, eldest sister, took me to the library when I was seven. You had to be seven before you could join our library in our town. Mm -hmm. And I remember waiting for that day. And uh, when I came home, my parents were delighted. Like, you could only get two books. And it was such a big day for me to to go to the library. And then when I started going by myself, that was even a bigger day. So I'm a library fan. I love libraries.
1: was it usual for people of your family to go to university?
0: no, I was the first one who actually finished high school mm-hmm. uh, my brothers and sisters they'd been to secondary school but they they left around the age of fifteen
1: which was pretty uh, normal at the
0: time, normal at that right? time yeah. um, and they left for jobs you know mm-hmm. they uh, they they all lived at home mm-hmm. but when, uh, I got I got the privilege of finishing high school mm-hmm. from a very sad event. Really, M- my father died when I was twelve, mm-hmm. and it was for us the most life changing event. Any death is life changing in a family, but. When our father died, I think for a while, our family fell apart, and I was 12, and my mother had and father had nine children. I was the youngest of nine children um, by 10 years, so my mother thought her family were done at eight, The family was done at eight, but lo and behold, 10 years after the last one was born i came along and that might have been a seismic seismic event for them also because <laughs> they now had i had my eldest brother was nearly 19 18 mm-hmm. and, when i was born so there were growing growing boys and girls um, my parents had lost two children which I, I know still talked about in our family i lost two brothers one I think around the age of three before my before I was born, and the other about a year mm-hmm. so um w- when I was born my my brothers some of them were working, and my sisters were still at school and but everybody went to school at least to fifteen and then would go into to work you know learn something and provide for the family it was it was a united family and um my father died, and uh, it was so sad for all of us. Um, two, three of my brothers had gone to England to work, which was very common in Ireland at that time. There wasn't enough work for people, so the emigration was very much a part of Irish family life, which was very hard on parents. And then. One of my sisters left and that left me and Maureen, my sister, my mother and father. And um, I was at school in grade six, mm-hmm. grade five. And um, I stayed in school which helped heal my broken heart. I think that's why I became a teacher really. Uh, I found such solace in learning I loved the classroom, I loved the teachers, I loved the choir, and then there was this unspoken family permission, if that's the word, I don't know. Why don't you just go on? And Ireland was changing then. People were getting a little more, uh, not rich, but a little more prosperous. And uh, all that emigration that people, you know, my brothers, when they'd come back, they changed. um, They'd bring back interesting stuff as gifts for me, like more interesting books and uh, the one, you know, even records from, from, I remember one of my brothers bringing um, a record from one of the English pop singers. Big thing. And then I just continued and I did well in the the equivalent of grade nine that year. I did quite well in the exams, the national exams. And then I continued on to do my high school graduation. And then I went to university. Mm -hmm. And again, I loved it. It was the love for me Mm -hmm. that propelled me. Yeah.
1: So after that, finish university. And you moved to Africa.
0: Well, I went to London, mm-hmm. and then I did a, a, a diploma mm-hmm. in ed, in education a year. Mm-hmm. And I thought the idea was to, you know, go back, mm-hmm. go back to Ireland, and um, or or even stay in England. I, I loved England. Stay in England. I think probably I I might have stayed in England mm-hmm. for a while, and. Um, But I decided I'd like to see a bit of the world, and I went to Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. I got a job there. Mm -hmm. Uh, People were volunteering in the 6 the Peace Corps, and the VSO, but I went to work there. I actually... But
1: why there? So how would you even know about about going there?
0: Well, I thought I would go to Africa. I had... But why Africa? Why Africa? Oh, the culture fascinated me, Mm -hmm. really. And I wanted to do something very different than Europe, and I also wanted to work somewhere that I thought I could be of value, to give back a little. Uh, but I couldn't afford to be a volunteer. I I needed to I needed to make a living, and. Um, one of my friends at university said that some of the uh, the West African countries that were newly independent were offering teaching positions at places like Nigeria and Ghana and Sierra Leone and I applied to an agency uh, through the, um, it was a Catholic agency because I, I had been brought up as a Catholic and there were There were jobs available in Ghana or Nigeria, I forget, somewhere there, and um, Freetown, Sierra Leone. Mm. And I read up about it, and that seemed to be the best for me. I could start in January, and um, the salary wasn't great, but it was, you know, adequate. Mm and i was going to teach in a, a convent school mm-hmm. um and i was going to teach believe it or not the english curriculum it, mm-hmm. they didn't uh the schools did english mm-hmm. the exams uh from england and i thought i could do that so i i went over and
1: was this your first job ever
0: first teaching job yes it was my first teaching job
1: You'd had but jobs. not my
0: first i had jobs you know i made whatever uh, the usual jobs mm-hmm. I didn't do waitressing because that uh, I mean jobs were were scarce in Ireland but mm-hmm. uh, you know I did babysitting mm-hmm. I s- s- stay with the family I was a live-in babysitter with a family in Ireland mm-hmm. that helped me pay my education mm-hmm. um, and that was a wonderful experience
1: so your first career job was not like down the street, it wasn't in the next city over, it wasn't like you moved like a few hours away. You went to Africa.
0: Yeah, to Syria. And
1: how long were you there for?
0: Oh, well, I was there for a number of years, but uh, uh, before I uh, I arrived in January mm-hmm. and um, was plunged into to teaching mm-hmm. and found that far from being um, a different cultural experience. the classroom actually was a tough place to be because these girls it was a girls' school. These girls were preparing for, as I mentioned, the the English examinations, which were pretty tough. Uh, they call them different things now, but it was um, I forget the name of the English exams, but so long ago, but they were they required very good teaching and there was a very set curriculum and believe it or not i had to teach to the sixth form which would be grade 12 because some of these girls were hoping to go to university overseas i had to teach latin so that didn't fit my idea of going to this is very sophisticated school and um you know those girls were applying to universities in Europe mm-hmm. and Many of them knew a lot more than I did quite frankly <laughs> just, just scary <laughs> All
1: right, so you're you're in Africa you meet dad and then the two of you kind of travel all over the world together yeah,
0: we got married mm-hmm. and we uh, The dad worked for a French company mm-hmm. and um, We came back to Sierra Leone Um and we worked up country. I didn't work in, uh, in that girl's school after that. I worked. I did take a job. Mm. Um, Dad was traveling a lot. Mm. And he went to various places in, in, uh, around there. Mm. Um, and um, I I worked in a, a boy's school, mm. actually. Uh, And that was another, that was the first time I had ever taught boys. Mm -hmm. Because I'd been to a girls' school Mm -hmm. from the age of, um, I guess, seven Mm -hmm. to 18. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, trained, I I didn't train to be a teacher of girls, Mm -hmm. I trained as a teacher, but I always taught, did my teaching practice in a girls' school and if I sobbed, it was always in a girls' school, mm-hmm. and here I am teaching uh, boys.
1: Oh, and we are we're a pack of animals. <laughs> no, very
0: nice boys, <laughs> but it was a different kind of school. Um, the school I taught in Freetown, you know, had a um, had a science lab, and it was you know just a very fairly sophisticated building. But this school was literally four walls, a corrugated roof, run by. Um, Run by priests and the boys would come and camp out to sign up for this school. Wow. And I, I look back on it and I, I'm, it, it, it was supposed to be a Catholic school, but actually many of the boys were Muslims. And on Fridays, they, the, um, the boys would go after school to to their there was a local mosque and they would go there and there was no big deal about it. They just you know mm-hmm. these these men who were their the priests they just took it in their stride. Mm-hmm. And again, the education the building was very basic, but there was a very good education given to the boys. Uh, there were some Peace Corps, the American Volunteer, mm-hmm. the, uh, some wonderful people mm-hmm. teaching there and some English volunteers, a voluntary service overseas. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I, I was teaching just English, mm-hmm. English literature. But again, those boys, I think, were doing still, yeah, they were still doing the English exams. It took a while for, um, for some countries to develop their own examination system. Mm-hmm. And um, it worked very, very well. The boys had a soccer team, and uh, it, was, it was a very good experience for me. And I kept in touch uh, on and off with some of those students for years. I mean, those students are now in their 60s, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. more even.
1: So you, you do all that, then essentially you and Dad travel the world based on his job where he's getting posted.
0: Yeah, well, not the world. He had traveled the world before he met me. He'd been in Indonesia. He'd been in Thailand. He'd been in South America, quite extensively in South America. And, uh, but after we were married, we, um, we went back to, to West Africa. And then we went to, we went back to France. Mm -hmm. That's where dad was based. And we lived in Paris. Uh, and your dad would travel out to, you know, to countries to do, uh, smaller jobs and come back at weekends. Um, at one time, you know, he was in Italy for a while, uh, coming and going, and th- that was very good for me. Mm. And I brushed up my, obviously, brushed up my French and mm. uh, I did some tutorial work there. People were anxious neighbors would say, oh, you're an English person. I'd say, no, I'm not. I'm Irish, but uh, it's like Canadian people saying, oh, you're American. And you know, it's more or less the same thing. And they'd say, oh, my kid needs to learn English. So there's a few people who speak English in a certain area of Paris with a lovely Irish accent because that was who I was. <laughs> I stopped explaining that after a while.
1: So. After all of this, you know, and I know you lived in Romania for a while as well. It was
0: a wonderful experience. We lived there for three years. your Araxi was born there. It was a communist country at the time, mm-hmm. so it was somewhat limiting yeah. uh, to our movement. Mm-hmm.
1: So you end up, after all of that, in Canada, in Montreal where you had me, and then in Calgary. Yeah. And that brings us kind of back to where we started, where after uh, you know, being um, leaving the, the household, you go back into being the breadwinner, or you go into being the breadwinner of the family, and that continues for many years. Where, of course, dad reestablishes himself and he's he's mm-hmm. off doing stuff, but you're out and you you have a full career. Yes. Yeah. And then you retire. This is where I think the conversation gets gets a little bit more difficult because. You know, people retire, and you're a, into a new stage of your life. You're saying, "Okay, mm-hmm. like, hey, like I've been this person." You know, you'd been the first in your family. My
0: identity was assert was formed as somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, you'd been this the only person in your family to finish high school. I believe the only person in your family to finish university is that correct? Mm-hmm. The only person in your family to travel a great distance of moving mm-hmm. to Africa. The only person in your family, I believe, to like travel all over the world you know, living and...
0: Well, some of the world, yeah, some of the, the world. Western world,
1: yeah. You find yourself in Canada, you become the, the breadwinner. And essentially, my experience of knowing about you in your, in your life and watching you move through the world has been, you've been this per- person who's been a risk taker. You've been the person who's colored outside of the lines. Mm-hmm. You've been the person who, you know what, I just need to make this work, so I'm going to do it. And, I, and, it, and demonstrated a, a great amount of grit and figuring it out along the way taking a leap and just being like well I didn't choose to leap I had to leap and I'm just going to figure out what the landing is when I get there then you retire and when you retire you know it's like oh I'm going into this different part of my life Mm -hmm. and then along the path of that two things happen that I I really kind of I think have created where you're at today Uh, the first is being the last of your, of your siblings. Mm -hmm. So what was that like for you when you were essentially the last of your immediate family?
0: Uh, There is really, there are no words to describe the absolute loneliness of that. Because at one time I had so many people in my life, Mm -hmm. frankly, It was kind of annoying. (laughs) I had so many people in my life. I had, uh, you know, as I said, four brothers, Mm -hmm. two sisters, Mm -hmm. all of them, many of them opinionated. Uh And there was something about my family that they didn't give their opinion unless they were asked.
1: Oh, you 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 don't have that gene. No, don't have I don't that. have <laughs> it.
0: I don't have it. I'm all out there, and they're out there too, but I think because I did, I stepped so much out of the the family tradition, really. You know, going so far away, um, marrying somebody not Irish. Uh, my my sister married one of my sisters married a man who's who's uh, who came from uh, whose mother was Welsh. but anyway, they were they were always interested in my stories, and that was lovely to be heard by them. and I'd tell them my stories. And I'd say, "Well, what do you think? or what do you want to know?" And they would always first of all tell me what they thought. Mm-hmm. And they would ask me what they wanted to know. And sometimes what they wanted to know was talking about was not so much about curiosity. It was because they really didn't know what it was like living in Africa. Or they didn't know what it was like uh, living in Montreal. Mm -hmm. Um, So their questions were very probing and made me think about myself. Um, But sometimes, uh, you know, I would think, oh. I have to, why, why, my brother, I had one brother who phoned me regularly. And uh, over all these years, even when phone calling was long distance, you know, it was called a trunk call. We're going to make a trunk call. And I'd wait for the phone to ring, and it would be Eugene. And, uh, you know, when I look back on it, it was really a wonderful gesture on his part, because no matter where I went, he found a number that would would get in touch with me. Uh-huh. And he'd say, I don't have much time now, Ursula, but this is what I want to know. Or this is what I want to tell you, because at that time you paid. Well, maybe you still pay by the minute. I don't know, but uh-huh. it was very expensive. And um, he'd say, uh, mother wants to know whatever it was and um, are you are you still going to mass are you still going to church are you still happy well no they never but that wasn't a word in our family are are you still all right Mm -hmm. that was it that was the code word for happy because we were not a family that used words like happy or i'm happy or i'm unhappy those words were not part of our vocabulary we knew if people were not happy, but we'd say, Are you sad? Right. Um, those words came later for us. Uh, we were not a particularly huggy family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will tell you something interesting. My parents never told me that they loved me, mm-hmm. but I always knew they did. And I never felt it was anything odd. Because I don't think other people, I can't say for sure, but the first time I heard somebody say, I was visiting a friend, an English friend, and the English are supposed to be very self-controlled, but I heard her her mother say, I love you, darling. Well, you know, there is no way i this earth that my mother was going to say, I love you, darling, to me. But I knew that she did, and I knew my parents did, and I knew my siblings did. And that's a very wonderful feeling to know you're loved without people having to say it all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how I knew that, but I did. But in North America, we, we have to say it a lot. Yeah. I, I don't know that... I don't, but it's actions, really. I mean, I knew from the, what they did for me and to me was out of love really even if i they told me things i didn't want to hear sometimes but you know i knew that yeah. anyway get back to what we were talking about
1: so how did you change as a result of being the last of your immediate family
0: well when i got over
1: of your of your uh of your side of the family yeah of, course, of you still my side ask, of the
0: family yeah,
1: um your brothers and sisters it and was like a
0: passed. a little a racing, a slow unpeeling p- of my very self, because my siblings died over a period, in you know, a period of time. Our first sibling, who was the most vulnerable of us, um, my brother Sean, whom we we loved, and I think I've talked to you about your uncle. <sighs> um, Sean died when he was fifty-eight. And I think you might have been there when I got the news uh, that he had died and I went home. Actually, when my brother Sean died, I I, I said I'd, I'd be home for the funeral. And then I realized my passport had expired. <laughs> so I didn't I couldn't arrive home for his funeral. My mother was still alive. Mm-hmm. And I arrived home, you know, a few days later, but at least I was there for my, you know, for my family and he was the beginning of us leaving and each one that left us was like a piece of me i said an unpeeling of my of of my soul mm-hmm. and for all of us and we, we have talked about it. Mm-hmm. And as, we got, as we've gotten older, uh, my siblings and as their children, all my, my siblings' children, they're all educated people. I, again, that comes from the desire of us to, to have that. Um, I think that helped my siblings open up. And they were shy people about their emotions. Mm-hmm. And when they opened up, it was such a gift to me. Mm-hmm. I had conversations with um, my brothers and one sister that were so wonderful, so so shy, so sweet. When they they revealed that their their own losses and their own um, life story that was so private. They were were quite a private, even though we talk a lot, we were quite a private family. And that was a gift those siblings gave to me. And I I had it with my sister Maureen, Mm -hmm. and I, I didn't have it with my sister Patsy, But I did, I had to some extent, but she she didn't really unfold like Maureen did. And three of my brothers. Mm -hmm. And whenever I'm feeling down or lonely, I recall those conversations. And uh, through it, they very shyly told me how much they loved me. Mm -hmm. And that was very nice. And we're all older people now, Mm -hmm. you know. So when they all left uh, this world, I'm using left mm-hmm. because I, it isn't that I'm scared to use the word dead, I'm not, but I really feel they left. Mm-hmm. They, they were, I think they were done and their lives had, had meaning. Mm-hmm. And it certainly, they left me behind, they left me behind with some knowledge of them. And a sweetness to their character that I wish I'd found out sooner. Mm. And no doubt, I I think they wish they had found out my sweetness sooner. But we did. Mm. It was lovely.
1: So the other event, which is one I, you know, kind of why, part of why I want us to talk uh, about the podcast is You know, dad got sick Mm -hmm. and, you know, without in respecting his privacy, um, you know, uh, for the audience, you know, my my father, my mother's husband is still with us, um, but uh, we're unable to care for him. So he lives in a home and you two had to move out here. And <laughs> we moved into such a wild situation because it was during the pandemic. I'll never forget when I uh, you got that phone. When I got the phone call, and just for, for a little bit of backstory, there was um, uh, the pandemic had set in, and home care. Uh, my parents had home care. You guys had home care coming in, and then the home care was uh, just disrupted because of the pandemic. And so but you they had,
0: couldn't come if they had even a cold or. Rightfully so.
1: So suddenly you were both in the situation where you were in Willow Park, Alberta, Calgary, Alberta. There's not a corner store that's close to you. And our neighbours can't come to help you out because of COVID.
0: And they're also getting old.
1: They're, they're all getting old. You're truly in a situation where there is no help on the horizon.
0: Yeah. And, and I'd had a heart attack.
1: You'd had a heart attack. And you never <laughs> forget this phone call. You have to come and get us. (laughs) And I was on a plane the next day. I flew out. We had no plan. Um, I had arranged uh, housing for you in very short notice. Uh, We had no plan. And uh, the housing that I had arranged wasn't going to be available for six weeks. Um, Or no, uh, it wasn't available for however long it was, uh, a while. So I'd gotten you an Airbnb. I flew out to Calgary. And got you all packed up with everything we could fit into, uh, into an SUV that I rented. And then we drove through the, the Rockies in the winter. Uh, there was a snowstorm.
0: Beginning, beginning of spring, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was the beginning of spring, but yeah. there was a snowstorm. A terrible oh, snowstorm. Yeah. So I'm driving, and for the first four-ish hours, it's terrible road conditions. And you are speaking. To the
0: avalanche area. <laughs>
1: yeah. your path. You're speaking at me for four hours straight in like high anxiety and the thing i'll never forget is that no matter what was going on for dad's health he was still with us enough that he could criticize my driving
0: (laughs) (laughs) he was was very very conscious of What was happening. He was actually very aware of what was happening Uh, and agreed to it by the way. But you hadn't mentioned that actually we had sold our house. That Mm -hmm. was the catalyst Mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. It, it, There was a plan, if you remember, prior the summer prior to all of this. Mm -hmm. um, we had spent a summer out here. That's right. And we had talked about us, like the idea of us coming out, Mm -hmm. and you would I think you had contacted a realtor Mm In Calgary, very wonderful man, mm-hmm. and um,
1: Daryl, shout out to Daryl. D-
0: yes, Daryl, uh,
1: friend of the podcast. Thank you, Paul Fraser, for helping us out. Paul, yeah. another friend of, the, friend of the podcast.
0: Yes, um,
1: Daryl, Dennis? D- Dennis, Dennis, Dennis. Plitt.
0: Ooh, sorry, Dennis, Plitt. Dennis, <laughs> yeah, Dennis, I, Dennis Plitt. uh, he, um. So he, 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 the advice was that we should put our house... Calgary was not like Vancouver. It was not so, a hot and this market.
1: And this is all pre-pandemic. Yeah.
0: So this pre-pandemic... Not uh, that just pre-pandemic. Uh, yeah. It was already in China at the time. Right. And then he decided, let's put the house up for sale in February. It's the beginning of the hot market in Calgary. And we did. And everybody said, it'll take... Oh, it'll take six months to sell. He didn't say that. He thought, hmm... I think we can sell this pretty soon, but I was not listening to him. I was listening to people. It'll take six months, Ursula.
1: No, it sold like that. It
0: sold in four days.
1: It's sold in four so days. So we
0: had nine weeks to get out of there.
1: But not only that, then the pandemic accelerated. And then the
0: pandemic started. So
1: I remember now, I had gotten new housing that wasn't going to start for a while. And it was an emergency. I had to move you out quickly. That's right. So I came, picked you up. We drove through the Rockies. It was a totally wild adventure getting through. We oh. get, We got through... And just as I get back into cell, cell phone reception, I get a message from Patrick. The Airbnb has canceled, canceled your, your, the Airbnb because of COVID. Oh. And then we all had to move into my office. <laughs> we all moved into my office. Oh,
0: it was a nightmare.
1: Six weeks. I had to work from the space. We had
0: In your kitchen.
1: We had, and we had to take care of dad in a one bedroom apartment. Um, at the time I was bringing groceries, uh, to, uh, I was bringing groceries to a number of people, making sure my, my kid had groceries. It was, uh, who, who wasn't staying with us at the time. Um, and it was a a totally wild situation, but eventually we were able to get the house that we're in now we are able to establish ourselves and we had Mm -hmm. to make the very difficult decision, uh, to put dad in an assistant living, uh, place that is a, a wonderful place. So this is where I want to go is you're in a really different place in your life now because you are essentially you're, you're with your husband for a few hours a day. You are, um,
0: I try to do the mornings yeah. if I can.
1: You are um, a person who's if you have an extended family back in Ireland, but your your siblings have passed.
0: Yeah, they're they're all gone. It's a different situation. I'm close to a few. So the person that
1: you were, and you know, kind of evolved into my identity. Years, yes, that changed significantly within the past
0: five yes. years. Yes, uh, I've. Um, I've had to change the portrait of myself. I always felt that there were parts of me missing, but now I realize, no, there are no parts of me missing. I just have to change, redraw the portrait of who I am now. And uh, one of the, the interesting things I discovered mm-hmm. that I am still very much married mm-hmm. to your father. Mm-hmm. I In the beginning, I felt so... Well you know, I'd come home and say, We've made a terrible mistake. Mm-hmm. We have to take Dad home mm-hmm. this is not this is not the way we we should live it's it's so unnatural, mm-hmm. but actually, I find that in this new portrait of us, the family, that your father is very much part of our lives mm-hmm. uh And now when I spend time with your father, I am 100% there. I've learned to be 100% there. We can go to the park across the street. We can go to the little garden at the back. I even go to Starbucks sometimes when the weather is fine. And wheel him over there and, listen, I'm not saying that it's, you know, like old times, but it's really lovely and I don't have to worry. I, I know when I take him back, I, and then I sit with him through lunch. He, mm-hmm. he likes when I have a meal with him. Mm-hmm. I don't always eat with him because I can't, but uh, I'll I sit with him wearing my mask, and he might we might chat or not. And then he has activities there; he's alive there. But he and I, when we're together, we're very much together. Mm-hmm. We're I enjoy it, and I know he does. Like when he holds my hand. And I feel it that this there's a partnership here. We're, I'm still very married to this man, and I've learned not to focus too any more actually on who he used to be. I do remember the tender times and the good times and the fun the fun times, particularly you know, in, you guys growing up, but. I now know that your father has actually a quality of life that I'm not so sure I could give him because I would be so anxious all the time. You know, when I go in there, people will say, well, uh, you know, um, uh, your husband is uh, needs uh, to have his hair cut. There's a barber there. Or he'll need to have a back rub or uh, food food that doesn't agree with him. You know, there is no way, even with care in the house, that I could give him the quality of life that he has. Um. I saying that just to make myself feel better? Actually, not now, not anymore. I mean, maybe in the beginning I did, but now I know that life is so fast. Sometimes we do have to ask for help. Well, and there's help available. That's the thing. And there are great places available. Yeah.
1: So I, I, I want to I hit on this because I think it's, it's important to talk about for anyone who might be going through a scenario that in the early stages of going through a, a scenario that's similar. Um, there can be a kind of guilt and shame that's applied to people or a kind of judgment when you make a decision to not keep a loved one in the home.
0: Oh, yeah
1: um how did you handle that and 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 how have you dealt with that externally but also internally with your own in inward directed guilt
0: with a lot of help from you Mm -hmm. and your sister Mm -hmm. and from my from my uh nieces Mm -hmm. uh one niece in particular, Deirdre, i tell her, uh, whose father was uh, my oldest sibling, the last one to die, um, and she and her sister had to go through that decision-making. Um, but you and I have had conversations about this in which I, I've, you know, my heart was broken. Mm-hmm. and. You know, I look back and I think for you, Ram, like on top of everything happening, keeping your business going and looking after your daughter, that you had a broken-hearted person living with you. And broken-hearted people are not awfully careful when they choose to emote the broken brokenheartedness,
1: <laughs> and it could be
0: in a perfectly normal drive, you know, just going, let's go for a drive, and that would seem a very harmless, you know, nice way, uh-huh. and suddenly I'd fall apart because Dad wasn't with us, uh-huh. or, and <sighs> I don't know if I should apologize for that, but mm. that's, I do if mm. it's needed, but mm. it, it just my I, my broken parts of me spewed all over when i couldn't contain it anymore. but that period of my life is done because there was some help available from the the uh St. Jude's right. Anglican nursing home uh there was there was some really good help available and i've learned to ask for help over the years mm. We started off this conversation. I learned to ask for help when I started off teaching, my first teaching job in Canada, and that has continued my whole life. I'm not ashamed to ask for help, mm-hmm. which is why I asked you to come and get us. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know,
0: I, and I meant right away. I meant the next day. I didn't mean when it suits you. Right. But um, so, you know, you have had to live with that. Mm. You've had to take on that and your sister has a helpful and on top of that when we started off your sister's a frontline worker and she she could not come to our house she would come to the steps and we would have these yelling conversations from the balcony how are you how are you dad and you know it was so confusing in the beginning we couldn't see your daughter if you remember you would have to bring her to the back balcony and it was such a bizarre time but we we went through that around mm-hmm. and I, you know we worked it out got your sister got online shopping you, you actually had to apply for online shopping <laughs> like now you know you get food shopping yeah. and I remember being so excited when Walmart took us on yeah. like it was a big event when and by the way there were they delivered oh they did, so we did all those things that were so bizarre if anybody had ever told us we'd have to do these things, and we did them, and you handled it mm-hmm. and i I hope you that somewhere in your heart you grew from that, or I hope it didn't break you too well,
1: I think a lot of what I learned from Watching you when I was young is—you step into the breach and you do what you got to do to keep things going.
0: Yes, you do, and, and you've got to become what's needed.
1: You got to become what's needed, and at that time, um, everyone needed me to keep it together for everybody.
0: Yeah, you were the linchpin, yeah. and I—I uh, I don't know what would have happened had you not been able to do it, or. You refuse to do it.
1: You gotta do it, and you know I I credit you as as being you know I learned that from you. And I also learned it from Dad because Dad did what he had to do. When, oh,
0: he did all the time. I
1: know it was tough for him uh, at that time when it was very traditional. Our uh, kind of like an old school way of thinking is that the man is the you know is the breadwinner. The the um, wife is the is the mother. Um, dad very uh, courageously stepped into a role that was. Um, I think for many men could have been uh, humiliating at that time and, and he he took it on He was a very loving guy great father great cook he, and he in many ways
0: things. he loved it he found his inner cook
1: <laughs> yeah I mean he, he ran that household like that he was like Mr. Mom oh, was, we, you know. we
0: saved much more money than um, yeah. I remember him saying you know I was so annoyed he said you know our, our we're spending much less now than we when when I was doing the grocery shopping because he really got into looking at bargains and and going you know to places to find bargains I couldn't be bothered <laughs>
1: he gave you a retroactive job performance review <laughs>
0: <laughs> didn't but do very well yet
1: like that idea of just like you do what you got to do to to make it work and the the thing that I'd say and I, I did learn this from um, touring and, and just being out in, in the world it's like Nobody's going to give anything to you, so uh, you got you have got to be the fastest. You've got to be the one with the most creativity, and you've got to be the person with the most stick stick to itness. Yeah, not in every situation. And believe
0: in yourself. You've got to believe totally. that what you're doing. You know what? Even if you're doing, sometimes this happens. You're doing the wrong thing. You find that later on, but sometimes you do the wrong thing for the right reason. But you 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 can't be apologetic about that. Well,
1: you should apologize if you, you did the wrong thing. Yes,
0: I know. <laughs> you're a you real do. jerk
1: or something.
0: No, but just ordinary stuff. Yeah. But you did ask about judge. Yes, I, I, I have to say that was a very hard thing when people would say, you didn't love him enough. Hmm. And that took me a long time to recover from.
1: I, I'm glad. Until that-
0: one day, I tell you when he, he when I knew. One day we were we were at that time Dad was walking pretty well and we, we walked to that little gazebo at the back and there was um uh one of those planters with uh so at levels you didn't have to bend down, you could do it at waist level. And uh there was parsley there and he was very interested in the mint and the parsley and whatever. And I I went over to him and I said, You know, Varish, you're going to have to uh, have to get you a tool to do that. And he looked at me, and he took my hand, and he kissed it here, and he said to me, you are so good to me. I love you, Hokies. And you know what? I thought, this is okay.
1: Tell the audience what Hokies means. I didn't go
0: get him the tool, by the way, but... Uh...
1: <laughs> Tell the audience what Hokies means.
0: Hokies means my soul.
1: Um I'm glad that you talked about that 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 you actually were set like that you did get some commentary about
0: I got yes, Cause... I did, and I got commentary from people th- who knew us and I thought knew me mm-hmm. and knew my heart, mm-hmm. but I also know that some of the commentaries i got comments I got were from people who who didn't necessarily. Who loved Dad and were very worried about him and felt that this was not a place that he should be. But what could I do?
1: They felt it wasn't a place he should be without understanding what the day-to-day situation was, without being in the and day-to-day. And we situation. didn't tell
0: them because of dad's privacy.
1: But also they they didn't understand the situation, they weren't in the situation, but they also didn't know. The wonderful place that he lives, which is very healthy. Yeah. The reason I'm I'm glad you brought it up is like, I think one of the things about leadership and whether it's like leadership in a business or it's leadership in a family or it's leadership uh, in a couple where one 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 of the couple becomes responsible for the health and well being mm. of the other, is you got to make calls. And you have to make a decision. And there comes a time where, if you are in a leadership role, either because you chose to do it or because life put you in that position, when you're there, anybody can comment on the decision. Anybody can have an opinion. And very often, people are um, merciless with their opinion. They'll share it, they'll tell you, they'll share it with other people, they'll spin it, they'll. Uh, give a version of events to other people. And as a leader, you've got no control over that. That's just what's going to happen. The most important thing for a leader is to know that you have to be able to make peace with your decisions. Yes. And also make peace when you screwed up and you made the wrong call.
0: Yes. You have to accept responsibility.
1: Being and a leader. That's
0: le- hard. It's
1: te- it is
0: terrible. Yeah. It's really hard.
1: It's, it's oh. terrible. And it's terrible when you're making decisions around payroll or who to hire or who to let go, who to lay off, uh, what direction a business should go in. But when the stakes are as high as whether or not you keep a loved one in the home, when they have health concerns that are beyond your ability to tend mm-hmm. to, that's the space where you have to be able to make peace, ultimately make peace with that. And you have been able to do that.
0: There are some times I have a dark, I have dark nights of the soul. It's usually around 2 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, Can I mention Jesse here? Oh yeah. My companion at night is a very unusual dog and he, because I know no matter how weird I feel or distressed, that there is a creature there (laughs) who is (laughs) more distressed than I am. (laughs) I mean, I don't hide under the bed, I don't (laughs) fall out of the bed and stay. (laughs) And if he if he gets under the the bedclothes with me, um, it is such a heartfelt moment for me. It's so heartwarming. So Jesse is really part of our survival as well. I know there are other dogs in this house, but I think Jesse deserves a special mention.
1: Distressy Jesse.
0: (laughs) Saying, you know what, <laughs> Jesse. but he uh, and you know what it was so funny, uh, as you know, your father loved loves animals and they love him, yeah. but the one creature <laughs> who did not like it, the only living being who did not like your father was Jesse. <laughs> no. used to, when when we were all together, hmm. Jesse would. Follow him and nip his ankles. I What's know. the matter with that dog?
1: But you know you know how there's like service dogs that yeah. like that help people in their life and, and whatever. Jesse has service people. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We're there to help Jesse. Well
1: <laughs> you're his service person.
0: Oh golly.
1: You and Jerry. Um I'm glad that you you're open to talking about that, because like I'd say as as like being your audience, watching you have to feel Like when you were first gonna move out here and people were giving you like, oh, don't do it, it's the worst.
0: Oh yes, people did. uh, Purely because of the uh, financial, uh, The mind you, in Calgary, people do, retired people do leave, many do, mm -hmm. and they do come here to BC to the island or they go to Arizona, Mm -hmm. Um, but they weren't doing it uh, at that time because of COVID becoming, being a prospect.
1: Yeah, Well, just again, being your audience, like you were in a situation where you had to become the the decision maker for you and dad and i remember every time someone would be like oh don't move to vancouver and you would call me and tell yeah. me about it i would just be listening to you but inside i'd be cursing that person like stop telling her this like yeah. i cuz i knew if you two stayed if you two had stayed in calgary just the two of you neither of you would be here now
0: no, I think, um, and I
1: don't mean physically. Here, you uh, likely wouldn't be. Well,
0: I think Dad would have had to. Uh, had we stayed in Calgary, we, we would have had to move out of that house within nine weeks. Anyway, we would have had to move elsewhere.
1: Even if you hadn't sold the house, you even guys, if you hadn't you sold wouldn't the, have the house, I couldn't stay in have. That house. I
0: couldn't have done it. No. Uh, I couldn't have managed a house and the whole thing. But um, the, the idea of fear. Mm-hmm. As you get older, it it isn't fear. It's the fact that you get into a comfort zone. And our life there was very pleasant. It wasn't necessarily happy all the time because we didn't have you and your sister. And, of course, at that time, Leora was not in the picture. Mm-hmm. Can I say Leora's yeah, yeah, name? Yeah. She was not born yet. So, you know, we had... We had a full life. Dad was a great bridge player. Mm-hmm. You know, he was in Tai Chi. Mm-hmm. He, uh, I did yoga. I played tennis mm-hmm. for a while. I played badminton. I was in a book club. I subbed. The schools I worked at would call me, and I'd have a little contract work. Mm-hmm. And Dad and I would go away for weekends to Banff, and you know, very nice things. But we knew the writing was on the wall. We knew that we were both getting older. Mm-hmm. Um, and, as I said, I had a heart attack. Mm. Not a, a major event, but enough, as my doctor said, Ursula, this is, you know, you really do have to start planning mm. your lives. And um, and then very started, you know, getting absent-minded and forgetful. And then he was very smart, your mm. father. He found out... Everything he needed to know because I was in denial a bit about it But he wasn't Mm -hmm. He wasn't at all he found out everything he needed to know and Got some testing done and That was prior to us coming out to that holiday And you noticed things weren't great Um, and Then one day he said Ursula we need to talk Mm -hmm. and knew what i knew the writing was i knew what he was going to talk about and he said i need you to know some things about me i said just write them down write them down he said no and he said something so important he said i need you to hear me he didn't say i need you to listen to me Hmm. he said i need you to hear me and there is a difference between being listened to listening sometimes can be a body language but hearing is actually hearing it yeah. and much like I had the conversation that that very deep conversations with my siblings I had an extremely deep conversation with your father about how he saw his future going and my blood froze but his didn't and He told me that there were tests coming up, and this is what he expected of me. And again, I was shattered, but the tests were the next day, so I had to be shattered for seven (laughs) hours and get on with it because he was together. He even had his little bag packed, and Mm -hmm. he was so organized. Mm -hmm. And he was the one who gave in his driver's license. Nobody had to wrestle it from his hand, Mm -hmm. or he didn't do any huffing and puffing about, he, he was such, he is still such a responsible person. And I know that you've inherited that. So he taught that conversation. I don't think I want to have it with anybody ever again.
1: Yeah.
0: And he found words Mm -hmm. and did not gild the lily at all. And he said to me at the end of it, because he had a wry sense of humor, he said, Do you still want me to write it? I said, No, it's too long. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but I know he he spoke so eloquently about himself. And there was nothing that is happening now that he didn't prophesize. And there's nothing where we are that he wouldn't have wanted because he fell in love with his granddaughter mm. and thought he's only going to have one grandchild. And no matter who said what, we were coming, we were coming out here. But fate intervened for him. But a uh, bright, bright man. Wonderful man, wonderful family heart. Oh.
1: Now we find ourselves all living together.
0: Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> within our privacy, I think. Yeah, but. of
1: course, of course. But we we had the the great flight out west uh, through the mountains. We had the living in the uh, <laughs> the office, my company's
0: office. Well, the together. office was a sort of a purgatory. Oh God! It was unbelievable. Ramshackle. I remember walking in one of your meetings one morning, uh, a Zoom meeting, uh-huh. and I forgot and you because you happened your... to be... I walked in in my dressing and my hair <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> Whatever.
1: You know, uh, I'll never forget that. It's pandemic. In my industry, many businesses went under.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, we grew, uh, but we grew because I was working like 12, you 14, You worked all the time. I could hear you days. above us. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it was something endearing, I think, to my clients of like, hey, my mom might walk through the camera at any moment. So um, we got through that. We got out of the office and we, we now are very fortunate to live in this beautiful house in this house in Strathcona. We've kind of found our rhythm all living together. You've got your own apartment. You know, I think it's wonderful for Leora to be able to, like, run downstairs and see her granny and have her a little play space down there. There's and, a
0: you, rhythm developing to that.
1: Yeah. It's, it, we're in a place, but going back to you and focusing on you, you're in a new stage of your life. And mm. of course, you know, I'm here and we're, you know, we interact all the time, but largely you're responsible for what happens for you next. Yeah. You don't have a partner who's looking out for you. You have kids, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, parent you know i've got a partner we've got um uh, i've got a business you know and then uh, araxi's got a job and a career and everything while there's people around you there of course to support you what happens next for you is all on you Mm -hmm. um one of the things i've i've noticed is a i can tell it's you and not some vancouver weirdo like i have become where people in Vancouver are very insular and they don't speak to anyone. They're they're not you know like every you literally know everybody everywhere. <laughs> you you know everyone's business, which I think is hilarious. People are like Ursula, but you also have like totally changed the way you dress. Like you dress like oh. a, you dress like super cool. You have cool glasses. You have got cool hair. Like thank you, Raph. <laughs> you've you've really leveled up in that way, but. What is life for you now? Like how 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 are you choosing to live going forward?
0: Well, I'm still <clears throat> interim, in a sense. I'm still I'm still my primary purpose is to be your father's advocate, and I have to thank you for that because really that's you. You expect little of me. I help you with Leora, sometimes babysitting. Um, but generally, I'm I'm there for dad. Mm-hmm. And it, this is a wonderful experience, I think, for, for me. And I hope for him. I know it is for him mm-hmm. uh, because we're together a lot. After that, you know, um, I have to be very sensible. I mean, I'm getting older, and I'm sure, you know, somewhere I will need care. But I'm not scared of that now. Mm -hmm. I'm not scared of, uh, it's not a specter of horror awaiting me. I now know that if I need help, um, it's out there, uh, and I know how to be choosy. And not from a snobbish point of view, I know that very often the fanciest of places are not necessarily the most caring and compassionate places. Um, So I'm not really afraid of the future in terms of my health, because I know how to access it. And I think you probably have some knowledge about that now. And I think you probably would have less fear about that Mm. for me. But I would like to Um, I would like to have a purpose other than that. I would like to have something creative for myself. Um, I write, I keep a journal and sometimes I'm amazed at what I write and sometimes it's cringeworthy what (laughs) I write. It's like the journal of wine, whining, (laughs) whining, whining, the chronicle of wine. But a lot of the time, you know, I realize that despite my great sadness about your dad, that I have never felt more alive than I have Mm -hmm. since moving into this house because of the area. I feel it's a very cosmopolitan area. I like the people I meet, I like the um, the energy of the place. And um, I'm so looking forward to seeing Leora grow up. Yeah. Looking forward to you mm. and, you know, getting happiness. Mm. And uh, looking forward to um, Araxi sorting mm. herself out. Mm-hmm. And getting to know Monica better Mm. and I'm just looking forward to my life as it is I'm not thinking too deeply about the future I am learning to just enjoy my days Mm. and when when I have a a sad day like yesterday for some reason I was it could have been the rain I was really sad yesterday I wasn't depressed it was just sad there's a difference between um, and I think it was really thinking about what you and I were going to talk about mm. and I think that sort of triggered me into a little bit of sadness but today very fine It wasn't so I'll good to right? see dad it was lovely and it, it was quite a nice chat <laughs> all we needed was some nice food and a glass of wine for me I know you don't drink but <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right so as we're closing off I'm gonna ask you three yeah. questions and they're yeah. gonna get more and more difficult as, as we go along okay all right so in this stage of your life and I don't mean um, around helping dad uh, get into into the home but I mean in this stage of life what have you know so now living in this house together and your life as it is today what have you learned about yourself that you're pleasantly surprised by?
0: Pleasantly surprised? My detachment from things. Yeah. And I think that really isn't, it might come with age. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm able to let go of, of things. I'm very happy with the smaller space. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also much more... Um, able to roll with the punches than I used to be. I'm less controlling, actually, mm-hmm. because, and again, I think that might be lack of energy. I, I have become an optimist despite uh, all that's happening in our lives. Yeah. And I'm, I'm amazed at that. I'm in awe of it. It's quite significant for me to be an optimist, but I'm looking forward to the future. And partly I think it's because we have Leora in it, that there's some some new life, new beginning and seeing her grow. And um, I'm glad that I have found my inner optimist, you know, again, because I lost it for a long time. I was very fearful. Very, very scared and anxious and fearful. Mm-hmm. And um, now I'm not.
1: Now, being relatively new to Vancouver, you know, mm-hmm. now you've been, how long it's been? Uh, almost three years. It'll right? be
0: three years in March. Yeah. The 20th of March. That's quite a while, actually.
1: What are three of your favorite things about Vancouver?
0: Well, first of all, the weather. Mm-hmm. The, well, and I know Vancouver, I going, what? It rains all the time. But the, uh, how climate climate it's warm warmer i love that Mm. i love the nature here Mm. i mean just walking down our street Mm. and the gardens at all time of year and um i adore it Mm. Mm. so that's one that's one uh number two i like the i call it i'm not calling it liberality Because I don't think it's liberal, but it's neutral. I think Vancouver is a very neutral place socially. Uh, You don't hear people proclaim or declaim or state their opinion that freely. People wait here Mm. until, I guess, they figure you out. And... um, I think it's an easy place, Vancouver, to be who you actually are. Hmm. I like that, which is why you were talking about changing my my fashion. I I don't mind wearing a hat like Lady Gaga, for example. (laughs) I don't think I would have done that in Calgary. But uh, when I got this pink hat, Uh I was walking down Commercial Drive with it. I was wondering, gosh, how am I looking? But, you know, I was enjoying it. And this young woman was walking towards me. She had her cell phone out, and she stopped. And she went, oh, I like (laughs) your hat. I said, thank you. And then I walked on, and then she said, oh, uh, ma'am, ma'am, ma'am. And she had her, she said, you know, Lady Gaga has your hat. That's why I'm calling. (laughs) She came back to show me. Now, uh, it was kind of cute. And I really, because I actually like Lady Gaga a lot. Oh. And, because she is, she colors outside the lines, yeah. right? And I thought, gosh, I walked taller. Yeah. I didn't hold my hat. I thought, oh, if it blows away, I'll find it. You know. So it's 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 Vancouver neutral. I can't explain what it is. It's it's a very interesting place. People give you enough space or time, or pause the button for you let yourself emerge yeah. uh, i never felt particularly judged here mm. but that could have been because i was numb when i came but yeah. i think i'm pretty right about it um uh, you know i'm in a i'm in a, a, a church that's on the fringes of hasting street mm-hmm. and that's a description beyond anything like some i said to somebody i'm a bit scared to go to the library on hasting street and this person said well somebody in your church could walk you there and i said Oh. Then I thought, no, they're so busy, like, doing what they're supposed to do, feeding the poor. And and then I thought, you know what? If I said to somebody in my very little church, I'm too scared to walk to the library in in, uh, Hastings Street, somebody would would say, gosh, why? And be bewildered. But somebody would actually, because they're, you know, nonjudgmental, they would actually find somebody to take me there if I actually asked, mm. but I never would because they've more important things to do. So th- to getting into Vancouver, I feel that th- I've been given um a, a pause or a place, a neutral place to be who I am, mm. and being, you know, it's nice.
1: And right, What's the third thing about Vancouver?
0: Uh. Well, the third thing, of course. Well, actually, it should be the first thing. Let's mm. reverse that. Is having you all here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't care who you are, The at the end of the day, if you have children. I don't, and I, I state, state this categorically, even if your relationship hasn't been great with your parents, I still think families do better when they're together from the beginning to the end of somebody's life cycle.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree.
0: Uh, as opposed to that, remember we were talking earlier about us being the nuclear family and how it was horrible for us in the beginning the week because we'd had huge families in Montreal. Um, I still think that it's better to work things out and be not living like us in close quarters, but being together at the family thing. An extended family, I've learned, is very important. Mm-hmm. I think we all have to revisit that.
1: All right. So final question yes. for you could be the hardest. What is the funniest thing that you have found about living with your adult son?
0: Oh, the number of times I pull my hair out, number one, but the number of, uh, they've been there, but the number of times I have laughed heartily has been much, much more. (laughs) Um, First of all, understanding that my son is an adult. That is, has been, did you want it to be funny or did you want I it to be to whatever it, you want? It is actually the most wonderful thing. I, I, but both my children, uh-huh. that, you know, when you'd come back to Calgary, you fit it into our lives. Uh-huh. And you were calling our friends Mr. and Mrs. and how are you? And, you know, we'd go to the movies together. We'd, uh-huh. you know, do things. But here, there's none of that. You know, I actually, for the first time, have seen you in, as they say, in situ, you know, in where you live, where you love, Mm. all of those things. And it's so wonderful. It really is. It took me all all this time to realize you're actually a grown person. You're (laughs) a grown man who had a life outside of your father and my life. And how dare, first of all, I thought, gosh, (laughs) did we plan for this? No, we didn't. But it's so lovely, you know, how you dress. how you eat well, we knew you were a vegan, and mm-hmm. because right? we we really made it we really learned a lot from that by the way. thank you for that. We learned to cook vegan I'm not a vegan, but mm-hmm. uh, your father really appreciated that more than I did, but we um, th- th- there were other things about you meeting your friends um, seeing you uh, exercise mm-hmm. and uh, what your hobbies were, and seeing you um, seeing your work and seeing the respect that people have for you and again I'm using the word humbling it's quite humbling because we have no part in it other than to birth you and set you off in your way but you did it all by yourself yeah. and the same for your sister you have authentic lives that so pleases me um, and above all, and you are you you're able to look me in the eye and say, oh, I don't agree with that. I'm doing whatever it is, or I believe in this, and that's great for me to see that you you have a life that you have worked out your own belief system mm-hmm. and your own work ethic and your family life, mm-hmm. and I I'm welcome into that, mm-hmm. but it's separate from. Separate, but part of it as well. And I realized, well, that's what parenting is. Kids are supposed to do that. They're supposed to be authentic, self-supporting individuals with opinions and lifestyles of their own. And if their lifestyle or their religion or their culture deviates from that of the primary family, that's it. That's so what. It's... Wonderful. Well done, you.
1: Thank you. Uh, it's, uh, I didn't do it on my own, though. I, I'd say you and Dad are like the original punks for me because so much of what you both did was like outside of the lines.
0: Yes. Even, yeah, even yeah. the way
1: we were raised. like.
0: Oh. <laughs> you, well,
1: because you never raised me in a like... You were never preachy about values. Instead of. Instead of kind of like having some big toting ethical flag I was just raised in a house where it was understood that racism was unacceptable, homophobia yeah. was unacceptable, sexism was unacceptable. Um, my first kind of like more radical trainings about like about life and politics and ideas were from how you two lived your life. Where it's like I remember the first time I came home and said a joke that that I shouldn't have said, just having this really hard conversation where I was like, Oh, I didn't even know. Like <laughs> that was like Was I, I
0: with that was I there then? Yeah, you and yeah. Dad
1: were there. But like you know everyone's got their own kind of experience as their parents but i definitely grew up feeling like you know i i've went through my own like oh my parents you know like they're just like they're they're like everyone else like you know like the anti-parent kind of anti-system thing as you, you go through as a, as a kid but as i got older and understood like you guys were really kind of like the first like punks that colored outside of the line for me and that's i think why i even was kind of attracted to punk or any of those things was because you guys had lived such a different kind of lifestyle Um, And then growing up in Calgary with such a like uh, exotic sounding name and, you know, like growing up where we grew up kind of isolated us quite a bit.
0: Well, your skateboarding thing, building your skateboarding ramp is quite a a declaration to the world.
1: (laughs) But being this nuclear family where there wasn't like us or other people around us, it really set me on a path. So I would say I did it all on my own. You guys definitely archetyped that, uh, were the archetype for that. All right, so we're closing off. Um, Before we get to your final words, uh, something I want to say is that, like, you know, we're telling this kind of epic story about how we got out here and got established, um, but we had a lot of help uh, from people. And I just want to give some shout outs. So first of all, I want to give a huge shout out to Monica, um, who has uh, become such an important part of our family. And we could not have done so much without, without Monica. So thank you, Monica. Um, Next, we got to give, uh, of course, Araxi's part of our family, but shout out to Araxi for playing a very important role and kind of helping with oh, that. She shows up. She uh, shows up. But we got to give a huge shout out to uh, Jerry, who has gone above and beyond for us many times, mm-hmm. and Patrick, oh.
0: mm-hmm. who,
1: you know, has uh, gone above and beyond. And, of course, Mike. We had a really good experience with the social um, worker out here, family. Who was a great help to you?
0: Yes, wonderful social worker. Yes,
1: really, really great help. And then, of course, um, I want to give a massive thank you to Saint Jude's, where Dad is, because their staff has been wonderful, and they're, they've really done done right by.
0: Well, by they've Dad. done holistically because it's not, it's about Dad, but it's about me, it's about you. Mm-hmm. When Leora is a, a very important person there, um, they a, a, as much as they can. That's a place that deals holistically holistically with people because dad doesn't come by himself to them he comes with he comes with us mm. and you'd be surprised what they know and they they know about us and they always inquire about the well-being of the family it's it's important that that balance is maintained yeah. um, thank are, you for that are we
1: are we forgetting anyone that we got to give a shout out to for for being of such help to us in this time?
0: Well, just uh, I have uh, uh, two friends in Calgary, I would love to, that have, can I do that? Shout them out? Well, one is Sheila Flannan, who, believe me, has talked me down from hysterics, particularly when we were sharing that house, uh, the office, and the other is Judy Old, uh, who uh, has been a mainstay of my life. And my sister-in-law, our sister Hasmik, in, in Montreal, who I can talk any time to her about her brother's situation, because there was another member of the family who had, who was that situation, and she was, for whom she was the advocate. And she is so, she will, give me advice from her experience and unstinting advice. It doesn't matter when I phone, and I don't phone at all, but there is a three hour difference. And sometimes I forget, and it might be nine o'clock here, but it's midnight there. And I, honestly, she has been a wonderful uh, mentor, I guess, in, in um, the stages of dad's illness. And, I thank you for. I thank her for that. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, so we're at the end here. Uh, any last words? Anything you want to share with the audience?
0: Other than, when well, I should say, other than, especially. Actually, I should use the word especially. That the core of our, the very core of our humanity is uh, the community of our inner sanctum community, be that what it is for you. The trust, if you have, if you can garner the trust and build it up of, of a, an inner sanctum of people and you see each other as other and like them for their otherness, not because they're the same as you or they speak the same language as you, but for somehow or other you get bonded and you accept each other as you are. Um, I think that's what gives you—that's the fuel in your heart. It's what energizes you, mm-hmm. um, and it's not always pleasant or even agreeable. But it's—it is having people that you trust. I think, and a mutual trust.
1: Well, uh, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for being on.
0: Well, thank you for having me, Ram. It's lovely. I love talking to you about this.
1: Uh, and you were nervous.
0: Was I was I nervous in the beginning?
1: No, not in the beginning. But you were nervous about having the conversation.
0: Well, I was, but I had I had looked at your podcasts, mm. and um, I knew more or less what you would ask. So I, but I didn't want it to be too practiced or too artificial. I wanted it to not to be false. I wanted it to be real.
1: Well, do you feel it was about achieved? And
0: real about you and about me as well.
1: Do you think we achieved the goal? Yes,
0: oh, I think we did. Well, we'll have to see it. I don't know what I feel, what I seem like on camera. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you did great. Mm. Um, all right, with that, thank you, Mom. Everyone will see you in the outro. And Mike, drop the beat. Hey, everyone, thanks for rolling with us through that. You know, that was heavy and funny and awesome. And- a little scary, really, I guess, for both my mom and I to talk about that stuff and, you know, life is just such a wild ride. Like, you know, there's there's so many highs and lows and something that I've really come to value and understand is how much your family really is everything in so many ways and how you define family. It could be your friends or your family, or your pets or your family or, you know, your biological family is your family. We've really gone through it in the past few years as a family. and really understanding the courage that it's taken for my mom to walk through all of this and how that's been such a guiding light for all of us that's a it's a huge thing and uh, I'm honored to be on the path with her so I hope anyone listening got as much out of this as I as I did out of having the conversation and uh, we'll leave it at that my name is Aram Arslanian, and this is one step beyond one step.
0: One.